So go ahead and open your Bibles to the book of Philippians. Philippians chapter 1. Starting in verse 21. It reads, For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. So last week we ended with verse 21, and we're kind of picking it up there, uh, wanting to make sure that we really have a, a pretty good understanding and grasp of what is meant when he says that uh, to die is gain, and, uh, but to live is, is, is Christ. And so when Paul says this, which again is a very well-known verse, remember this, that the instant an individual places their faith in Jesus Christ as their Savior, that person is joined organically in a very living, real union with Christ, who is the head, as a member of his body, which is the church. So again, what we should think about from time to time, when it comes to our religion, when it comes to the relationship that we have with Christ, is we need to remind ourselves that this is not just some thing that we say. Um, it's not just some attitude that we have. Um, it's not just some thought that we have that uh, helps us to think positively about life. What we need to remind ourselves is, is that God really is here with us. That as a believer, God really does dwell in you. His spirit is there. The Bible says that God has sealed us with his Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit's never going to leave. Uh, we are sealed until the day of redemption. And the day of redemption there is the day that our bodies are glorified when, when sin is completely done away with. And so that is our state. That is our position. It's never going to change because it's dependent upon his word and his word is dependent upon him living. And he's alive and he, he can't die again and he never will die again. So we need to remind ourselves of that. And maybe especially when we go through dark times, maybe when we're feeling lonely or we're feeling abandoned or we're feeling weak spiritually, I do think we have to get in the habit as Christians to think as Christians, to, to remind ourselves that no matter what time of day it is, I'm a Christian. I'm to live in a particular way. Now, when I say that, that doesn't mean that you have to say certain things all the time. But again, it is very much like marriage. When you are married, there's never a moment in the day you're not married. Right? There's never a moment, there's never a moment in the day when, in one sense, you're not really allowed to think like a single person. That would be wrong to do that. That would be a betrayal of your true position. You will be even expected to act a certain way by other people because you're married. You know, so if the guy is at a party and he's flirting with all the girls, like, what are you doing? You're married. Everybody has an expectation that you should not do that. That's wrong for you to behave in that way. And then when it comes to the way you live your life, you normally would automatically think in terms of being married. 
You think in terms of whatever you're going to be doing, what does my partner, what would they think about this? Um, you want to know what they think about this. You might want, you, you, I want to tell them this. You don't just make plans on your own unless you've already spoken to them in advance about what you're going to do. It's just kind of how you, you now live life jointly together. That, that's just a, a normal way of living life. So it's not that you always have to actually just, you don't, you don't wake up in the morning and say, I'm married, I'm married. I'm, you don't have to do that. All right? It's just, it's an, it's just, just a, it's a state of mind. So as a believer, it is the same thing, except even more so, and it's more important to remember that. So th this idea then that we are uh, to live as Christ, uh, again, that, that's that idea that embodies every aspect of life. So the believer is in union with Christ. I mentioned to you that that used to be a, a, a very common topic uh, to talk about in um, churches or even in special uh, like churches would have a seminar uh, where maybe a special speaker would come in and speak for two, three, or four nights in a row, all on one subject, our union with Christ, uh, because of its importance um, as, as believers. So it, it doesn't seem to be uh, spoken of a lot today in that way. Um, who knows why? It doesn't really matter. Uh, but again, it's, it's a vital <coughs> aspect of our lives as Christians. So that always, again, speaks of this true standing we have before God. But with this standing that I have before God, the idea is that we have to grow in our experience of the reality of that standing. So in one way, sometimes you will hear individuals who, when they marry, in the early part of the marriage, sometimes, you know, you may get caught up in a conversation and maybe start making plans and go, oh, I, I got to check with Cindy. Or you may say, oh, I got to go check with my husband. Because you, it's like all of a sudden you realize, oh, I'm married now. <laughs> I just can't make plans willy-nilly. All right, there's another person that's involved here. So in the beginning, you're going to have to remind yourself. So the idea with that is your standing as a married person hasn't changed. But your experience, the experience of living that out, is still new to you. And so you have to, you know, you got to learn how to think that. And again, it becomes automatic fairly quickly after a while. So we need to understand what it means to live in fellowship with Christ. You know, this idea of communing with Christ and depending on Christ really for everything. And that's, you know, there are many different aspects of the Christian life that the world doesn't get and doesn't understand. So they will ridicule us or sometimes uh, mock us because they don't understand that. So, so they, they sometimes, when I say they, the world in general, the secular world, may view the Christian as being an individual who seems to be tied down uh, with a bunch of legalistic rules. We're not, but, but they, that's how they view it. Because to them, religion is, is just a thing. It's just, well, I, I do such and such, you know, because that's good for my spirituality. It's, it's actually kind of the way that the pagans approached religion back in the days of Jesus and the days of Paul. When you read about religions during those times, most of the time when it came to pagan religions, religions and we've mentioned this before, they, they never had, like, there was never at the Temple of Venus a family seminar. That didn't happen. There was no classes or studies on how to be a good parent. Uh, there, was, there were no classes on ethics. There, the, the, you know, worshiping Venus the, didn't carry any ethical demands with it. Basically, the idea was, in all of these different religions, where you were to make some kind of a sacrifice, give, maybe give money, do, be involved in some kind of ritual 
to make the gods or gods happy. It was kind of a cultural thing uh, because if you didn't engage in some kind of pagan worship, people kind of looked down on you. And remember, I mentioned to you the strange thing that uh, in the days of Rome, Christians were often viewed and called atheists because they, you know, the, the, the pagan would say, where's your God? And they would expect you to show them like a statue or something. And we say, well, he, he's in heaven. He's spirit. And because there was no visible image, they, would, they accused Christians of being atheists. And they believed at times that if something bad was to happen, it's because all the gods were angry at the Christians because the Christians refused to acknowledge the existence of gods. And so, there were, and so Christians were looked down upon. Uh, they were seen as a bad omen at times. Uh, you didn't want your children playing with Christians. Um, and it, it, was almost, it was kind of funny because it would be like this. We would say, well, you can't play the kids down the street. Mom and dad, their mom and dad worship Satan, right? Uh, or their mom and dad, they don't even believe in God, and they do this and they do that. Well, back in the days of Paul, they would say, you can't play with those kids. Their, their parents, they're atheists. They, they believe in an invisible God, and you know, that's just wrong. So we kind of have to have that mindset. So when Paul talks about these things, this, there's this aspect of this actual relationship with God, because no religion talks about having a relationship with God. You talk to a Muslim, they don't have a relationship with Allah. There's, there's, they don't use that language. All right, so this idea that God cares about us and interacts with us and speaks to us, and we speak to him, and we have this relationship like he's a real person, which he is, that's just a foreign concept to them. But it's one that's vital to us, and we need to make sure that we don't slip into thinking the way that the world thinks when it comes to this. So turn over, if you don't mind, to Philippians 3. We're going to talk a little bit about this. Uh, obviously, we'll cover this again a little bit, uh, which will be probably in a couple of months when we get to Philippians 3, but we'll look at it now. Philippians 3, and I'm going to begin reading in verse 8. So Paul writes this. He says, for his sake, which is for the sake of Christ, for his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish. Now, let me pause there. So if you're unfamiliar with Paul and his story, Paul was uh, a Pharisee at one time. Uh, he was highly respected. He was uh, also part of a special group of Pharisees uh, that in English they would have been known as trailblazers. Those were individuals that were involved in helping with the creation of what we now call the Mishnah or the oral traditions. There was, a, there was a continual building of a safety fence around the law of Moses. Uh, and the goal of the Jewish, uh, Jewish Pharisees and all the religious leaders was to build offensive laws around the law of Moses. And the idea was that you never want to break the law of Moses. That's a big no-no. So this other fence that they built, and in some places it's called fence laws, but this other fence around they built was basically to serve as a warning sign. So when you break one of those laws, that's bad, but it's, it's good. It, it's better than breaking the actual law of Moses. And the idea is you break this law, um, it stops you in your tracks. And because you're progressing to breaking the law of Moses, so that stops you and you don't get that far. That was the idea. But by the time Jesus comes along, many of those traditions 
uh, many of the religious leaders looked at the defense laws as being almost on an equal par with the law of Moses. And they also manipulated these laws to help them get around some of the dictates of the law of Moses. Um, and so they were very hypocritical in a lot of things that they did. So that's what Paul was. Paul, except Paul was one of those guys that he took all that real serious. So he wasn't one of the guys that was trying to use defense law to get around the law. He was serious. He was the guy that whenever they had a special need, he's the guy you get. Because he had this dogged determination. He was, he, he was going to get it done because he was zealous. So he was brilliant. He was, uh, he was looked up to. He was, in a sense, you, you could say high-ranking in the sense of the respect they had for him. So that's why he was given special letters, special authority to go from town to town when he was basically hunting for Christians and looking to get them to deny their faith and to kind of basically uh, relocate themselves within the good graces of Judaism where he would have them persecuted, either put to death, have them thrown in prison, or even beaten. Um, you know, they would have the... Uh, various they would they would they would carry the right to do that their culture was kind of like would encourage that and so you could do those kinds of things and we know the story in acts where stephen um is preaching the gospel and so when they when they take him out and they <coughs> stone him to death it talks about everyone laying their cloaks down at the feet of paul that wasn't so he could guard them against a pickpocket uh it was kind of a, they they took the, the outer coats off so they could throw the stones harder but they also laid him at his feet because he was kind of the one who was sanctioning the whole thing. And so they, that was his way of giving his approval. So that would not then be murder on them. They were doing that for God. So, so Paul then had all this prestige, probably had at least some money. I don't know how wealthy he was, but he wasn't poor. Um, and he had all this, and he lost all of that. When he became a Christian, that was all taken away. Uh, he was no longer, you know, then, in fact, if you read through Acts, there was a contract taken out on his life twice where they wanted him dead. He was left for dead more than once. He's lost everything. Yes. Bobby, he was married. Yes. I believe he had to be because um, you didn't have a Pharisee who was single. So we don't know what happened to his wife, though. We don't know if she died. Um, she may have even divorced him, even though they didn't allow women to divorce their husbands. There was a period of time when a woman would have been given what they call a special dispensation, but they wouldn't call it that. That's what we would call that. But the idea was is her husband is viewed as one who's betrayed their race, their nation, and their religion. And so in that case, it's almost like, well, your husband's become an infidel. You know, we're, we are going to, we are, they're not really giving her the authority, but they're saying, we're, we're going to do this for you and allow you to divorce your husband because... He's, he's no good. He's going to take you down with him. That may have happened. We don't know. Uh, it could have that she died, but at one time he was married. When he writes all this, he's not married. Uh, he's single by this time. So when he talks about having suffered the loss of all things, that's what he means. He's, he's lost it all um, in that sense. But then he says, and he counts him as rubbish. So he, he views whether it's his wealth or his prestige or his titles or the respect to him that is of no greater value than a pile of manure compared to something else. All right, so he says, for his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them in rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. So again, 
When you read through Romans, it becomes clear that, that no one gains righteousness by obeying the law because no one can obey the law perfectly. Paul was one of those individuals that people might say, if anyone obeys the law perfectly, it's Paul. Now, he didn't, but he was that, he's that kind of guy. He would have that kind of religious respect. So, but he's making it clear that uh, what he has, he has, he is righteous, but it's not because of his own doing. It's not because of that zealousness. It's because of Christ. Um, and he has faith in Christ. That's why he has that. So he says, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. So Paul is all in. He's fully identified with Christ in every way. And so when he writes this to these individuals, that's why when we read earlier, when he was talking about, you know, remember, he's in prison when he writes this. You, you don't hear him complaining. He's not complaining. He's not saying, oh, please, you know, pray that we can, you know, let's start a GoFundMe praise of page so I can get bail. He's not asking for any of that kind of stuff. Right? He's, all he's concerned about is the spreading of the gospel. And he's like, man, guess what? Because <laughs> of this, man, the gospel is spreading among the, the imperial guard. It was like, you know, how do you, how do you get the witness of the imperial guard? Get arrested. They get handcuffed to him all day long. And, you know, he, he didn't plan it that way, but that's what's happened. And so he just views all these things as all these opportunities to be able to share the gospel. Because he knows that God is sovereign. God's in charge of his life. And if God did not want him in prison, he wouldn't be there. If God wanted him out, he'd be out. So since he's there, he needs to make the most of his time in obedience to God and do what he's supposed to do. And so that's what he's doing. Um, and that's why he writes these things. So he is truly an example in every way to us and to these individuals, to the, to the people, to the believers in the city of Philippi that he's writing to, that he, he wants to encourage them. All right, so this is not some religious guy that says, do what I say, but don't pay any attention to what I do. I did find it interesting. I know that you know, with all this stuff going on in the Middle East, Hamas, you know, which is basically a terrorist group, but, um, you know, they're, uh, but, but you'll get the idea. A lot of their leaders don't live in Gaza. They live in Iran and Lebanon, and they live in these palaces. I mean, they've got it made. So, you know, they're giving all these orders, and these, all these individuals are risking their life and dying. And they're sitting back in safety and luxury and all the rest. That's, and there's Christians who've done that kind of thing. That's not what Paul's doing. Paul's on the front lines. He's arrested. He's good with it. Um, and so he wants these individuals to understand that. And he wants them to be encouraged uh, when it comes to that. So the idea here with all the, that Paul's talking about is he is growing in his love for Christ. And he wants that. He wants to love Christ with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength. Uh, we are commanded to do that. We don't do that very well or consistently, but we should want to do that more. In the same way that if you have a, hopefully, if you have a halfway decent marriage, even if you love your spouse with all of your heart, mind, and strength, you should want to love them better. Because we, we don't, none of us love anyone perfectly. Right? Sometimes we still snap. Sometimes we're still ugly. Sometimes, you know, we just, whatever. We just get, we wake up and we're just yucky people. All right? So the idea is we do want to love them better. We want to treat them better. We want them, you know, we, we, we don't want them to, you know, when I'm on my deathbed, I don't, I don't want my wife thinking, I'm so glad. You know, my life's going to be so much easier now. 
You know, I don't want her to think that. Um, so, you know, the idea is, is that, that um, we, we want to have that relationship that really grows and there's a greater intimacy. So again, this relationship that we have with, with God, Paul, again, leading the way, is helping us to understand that we can actually grow in this. So it's not, so it's not growing stronger religiously where you have more things memorized and you're more uh, obedient to all the commands. You will be more obedient to the commands, but not in a robotic way. All right? It is really in because you love them. So again, back to marriage. So when it comes to the relationship with me and my wife, I want to be faithful to my wife. I desire to be faithful to my wife. And I should desire that because I love her. All right? So it's not like, so if, if another woman's talking to me and says, look, I have money and I like you and I can give you a great life. All right. I should not be thinking, well, I need to be faithful to my wife because that's my duty. Even though it is my duty. The idea should be is I desire to be faithful to her because I love her. It happens with our kids. Hopefully, you know, when our kids are real, real young, they obey us because they don't want to get in trouble. But there's also something else that goes on when our kids are young. Our kids also act, they want to please us. When they're little, when they're little they want to please us because they love us. And we love them, and they know that. So they're driven by that. What we hope is even when they become teenagers, because some become pretty nasty at that point, but the goal hopefully is, is that then when they become older, that they will continue to obey us because what? They love us. Because see, we can no longer cause them to be afraid of us. That, that, that would not be good parenting. You know, if, if, you have a, if you see a guy with a 16-year-old son, and the dad puts on brass knuckles and says, you're going to do what I say, we would say, well, you know, they probably don't have the best relationship. You know, that's not a loving, you know, kind of a deal. All right? it, uh, we don't want the son to only obey his dad because he's afraid to get punched in the head. The idea is, is that it comes all, it's all based on that relationship. And the same thing when it comes to our faithfulness to Christ. So, you know, when we gather believers on Sunday, it may be at times or maybe in the beginning, you know, well, yeah, I, I, I mean, I got to go to church. I got to go. You know, it's, I know that's what God wants. But eventually what should happen is, even though it won't be this every, all the time, but it should be that then it becomes kind of a habit where you just, you just do it automatically, all right? And then after a while, what should happen is, is you want to do that. I want to be there. I want to, I want to be with them. I want to worship the Lord. It becomes a, an important aspect of my life. Not just an important aspect on the calendar, but a part of my life, you know, part of my existence kind of a thing. And so that's all what Paul's talking about uh, when it comes to this relationship with, with Christ. So the idea then is that Paul is doing this. We need to do this. We want to submit all of our thoughts, our emotions, our words, our deeds to the Lordship of Christ. That is easy to say and very difficult to do. All right, when it comes to submitting all of your thoughts and all of your emotions to the Lord. All right, because we, in our culture anyway, often, not always, but often, emotions are viewed almost as being sacred. And they're not. They're not. We want to evaluate our emotions based on what does the Word of God say. So then, if you're speaking to a friend who has, let's say, a little bit of difficulty in their marriage, and it doesn't matter if, it's, if, you're, talk, if, you know, if you're talking to your buddy and, and he's talking to you, or you're talking to your girlfriend and she's talking to you, the idea is when one of them says, well, I really feel strongly about this other person, 
you can say your feelings are wrong. You can say that, and that's correct. The culture we live in, people say, no, 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 you don't understand. You can't tell me the way I feel is wrong. Yeah, we can, because we have what the scripture says. Your heart will lead you away from the Lord. Not always. Hopefully, it won't always do that, because as the heart changes, you know, our emotions change. But we can evaluate our emotions based on what the Bible says, and it leads us in the way that's right. And so we need to get in the habit of doing that. And we're not always in the habit of doing that. Um, and so we need to make it our habit. So when you're feeling angry towards a person, or whatever the case may happen to be, you're feeling strongly, whether it's love or well, whatever, what does the scripture say? What does the scripture say about this? So the Bible may not say, your feelings are wrong if you're loving, if you're falling in love with a woman that's not your wife. It doesn't say it that way. But it says categorically that adultery is what? Sinful. Period. So, and it's not talking about your feelings, so it doesn't matter. Right? So then if, if you're feeling love towards a person and you're thinking that, well, Jesus also covered that in the Sermon on the Mount. And so what, so what we have to realize is, or, or tell ourselves, no matter how difficult it is, is my feelings are wrong. They're leading me away from God. Our feelings are not given to us to only help us to feel better about ourselves or to enjoy life. They can do that. But if we, if we hold or allow our emotions to have too high of a place, it leads us away from God because it becomes all about us and the way we feel. People used to say, maybe they still say, some people say, well, I just don't see how, you know, what I feel for this person, I don't see how it can be wrong because it feels so right. And so people say, well, the Christian just puts a damper on it because we say, well, the Bible says, and people will say this, I'm just sick and tired of you always saying what the Bible says. You know why we do that? Because we don't want to, we want to be our own gods. We want to be our own bosses. We don't want to submit to what God says. We want to determine what's right and wrong for us, which goes right back to the Garden of Eden. Right? That's what was, you know, when, when Satan tempted Eve and said that when you eat from the tree, you will uh, have the knowledge of good and evil. That's not just that she would know what is right and wrong. She already knew a little bit already. But it really has the idea uh, in that of you will be the one who determines right and wrong. And that's what we want to do. That's how we want to live. I want to determine what's right and wrong for me. Right? So when, if, if I'm in a hurry to get to Atlanta and I'm driving 85, as long as I think I'm driving safe, the cops should not pull me over. Right? Because I'm the one who's determining what is safe and what is right. Where in reality we know that's wrong. But that's how, we, that's how we view a lot of things in life. So we have to be very careful with that and make sure we don't allow ourselves to go in that direction. So being a Christian then is this idea of submitting all these things to God. But again, in the flesh, we might be thinking, oh, everything? I mean, it's like so hard. I mean, it's just all this. It's every, i got to think about everything. So imagine, I'm talking to your daughter's future husband, and you're in the room, and you're just kind of sitting over on the side, and I'm talking to him, and I say, you know, when you get married, you have to think of everything in terms of your new wife. How would you feel if you heard your wife's future husband say, what? Everything? 
man, I, I mean, I want to think about everything in terms of her. I have to think about, I mean, even like bowling with my friends. I mean, what do you, I don't know. You would be the concern, like, what's that boy doing? Right? What does he think this is? Right? So why would it be one way when it comes to marriage and something completely different when it comes to religion? Because we, we want religion to be kept in its own little box, but it encompasses everything. And that's not a bad thing. It, it's, a, it's a wonderful thing. Right? At least this religion is, because Christ is changing the individual. Right? And so um, I've been, I was asked before when I was a jail chaplain, you know, this one individual, they were kind of caught up in the way the world kind of approaches things. And they said, I just don't see how, because they knew I had a program um, in, in the jail, and it wasn't divided by um, their charges. You know, because some people think, well, you know, you can have a Bible study for those who are there for drug charges, and then those who are there for maybe car theft, and those who are there for, you know, assault. And we want to divide them all up that way. Because I don't, I don't see how you can approach all those different problems with just the Bible. Well, you can, because here's the deal. When you become a believer, Christ enters your life. He changes your heart. When he changes your heart, you become a better person. Being a better person, no matter what your problem is, you become better. You become less violent. You become the person who's less prone to do drugs or sell drugs or to be dishonest. It, it, because the problems we have is what? It's the heart. It's what's going on in here. And there really are some basic things. The, the main one, again, being... I want to determine what's right or wrong for me. I want to determine how I handle my problems, whatever that may happen to be. And so uh, the gospel really does work in that sense, dealing with all of us because it deals with the heart problem. And so that's why that aspect of the Christian life is so important that we continue on that journey and allow God to change us to become what he wants us to become. So the idea then is I do seek to please God in every respect. Every aspect of my life must be centered around Jesus Christ. So then, in a very practical way. So when it comes to the way that I look at a calendar, I, and no matter what I'm planning, I never think in terms of, what am I doing on Sunday? I'm worshiping the Lord. Even when we go on vacation, and it's easier now, actually, with the internet, we can, we can find a pretty decent church somewhere, and we can gather with believers and worship God. That's what, and I want to do that. Number one, it's kind of cool to, to meet other people and see what the, how they're worshiping or whatever. But, but it's not like, well, we're on vacation. Yeah, because people will do this. Well, we're on vacation. We don't need to go to church. Like, what is that about? And I used to use this illustration with the, with the guys in the jail. And I said, so let's say that, uh, you know, you have a misdemeanor charge. You've already, you've already done almost a year. So you know for a fact that when you go before the judge, um, you're going to basically plead guilty. He's going to pronounce the sentence. You get time served. You've already served it. You're getting out. So on the day that you're supposed to go to court, what you don't know is the judge is at home. And when he woke up that morning, he said, you know, I think I want to start my vacation today. Didn't tell anybody. So there's no one to take his cases. His buddy called him last night. He wants to go fishing. So he goes. So now the jail doesn't know that. So you load up in the van and you go to court and you sit there in a little cell waiting for them to you know, call you out. And you end up coming back and you're like, wait a minute, I'm supposed to get out today. 
Ah, the judge didn't show up. What do you mean the judge didn't show up? You guys can't keep me. I've already served my time. What do we can do? We can get away for the judge. And then if you imagine if you find out later that the judge just didn't feel like coming in. That's not right. He has responsibilities. You know, we just kind of, we, we expect others to live a certain way, but when it comes to us, we don't want any of that on us. So when we look, so we do our lives, again, it's just, we just, it's just naturally, it's naturally around what we do as believers. So when my wife and I decide to go on vacation, um, we don't say, hey, we're going to be on vacation. Let's do a booze cruise. You know? First of all, I don't really want to do that. <laughs> to me, that just kind of dumb, defeats the purpose. When you know, get so drunk, you're throwing up every night. That just doesn't sound like fun. But we just don't do that. But we don't want to do that. Right? So, you, so every aspect of our life, including our vacation, everything is just in the... So it doesn't mean that we say, oh, we're going on vacation, we have to go to church every day. It's not that either. Right? We can live life and enjoy life, and we can enjoy all the things that God's given us. And, we can, and, we, and what we are doing that, and our life is still, what, centered around Christ and what he said. And so that's, that's what we want to do. So again, every aspect of life is centered around Christ. Again, he is a glorious person. He is nothing less. Um, and so our experience of living Christ is a process that's never fully realized in this life. It, we continue to make progress, but, but it, it, it gets better and better. It really does. Let me read to you from, oh, well, verse 12 again, in, uh, as Paul said in verse 12 of chapter 3. Not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on in order that I may lay hold of that for which I was also laid hold of by Christ Jesus. So the most godly Christians have, ta- have times when Christ may seem distant and your soul might seem dull or sluggish. Uh, in this life, we never reach a point where we're not tempted by sin. Um, we never become sinless. I do think we basically should sin less, and there are fewer things that tempt us. So we never get to a point that we're never tempted, but it should be at least that the things that tempted you when you were in your 20s should not be tempting you in your 40s if you've been a believer the whole time. There may be some things that are the same or similar, but there are many things that just kind of go by the wayside, which because you're growing and you're changing. Uh, as an individual, uh, we should be less selfish. We should be less uh, concerned about our ego, less concerned about our pride, less concerned about what's mine. All those kinds of things. Those things all change as we grow as Christians. And so uh, that, that's kind of a lifelong thing. So we never really reach a point where we're not tempted by sin. Uh, we will have to battle lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life for the rest of our life. Uh, but it, it tends to get a little easier along the way. It does. Um, but there's going to be struggles and there's going to be battles. Uh, if we are true children of the Lord, uh, we, we will have as our focus uh, a desire to live in an experiential way where our union with Christ becomes our all in all. In the same way that it's, I cannot think of my life not being married. Because I've been married for so long. Oh, I've been married for more than half my life. That's, and I've been married for most of my adult life. Almost all of it. That's all that I know. And, and that's what I am. And again, it's just it's a very natural thing. You know, There's, I can promise you this, and I'm not only saying this because my wife is here. 
There's never a time where anyone asks me anything and I think or say, I just wish I wasn't married. Then I could do that. That, just, that thought doesn't, just, doesn't ever cross my mind. Because right? in a sense, it's part of my identity. And so as a Christian, that's kind of what it becomes. Uh, and so I, the reason I keep going back to that idea is because a lot of Christians have this other idea that we're always, that, that being a Christian and having to think all these things is, is like a burden. And we keep thinking in terms of all the things we can't do. But we should be thinking in terms of all the things that we can do. Um, because we're not limited in that sense. We're limited in sin, but why is that a bad thing? That, that should be, a, that's a great thing. Um, and so, Again, all of that is going to be helped along as we recognize what it is that we have with the Lord. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, one of my favorite preachers of all times, he's dead now, but he was, uh, uh, he was uh, from Wales, even though he lived a lot of his adult life in England. He said this. He said, uh, talking about uh, um, for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. He says, in these words, we are brought face to face with the most important questions that can ever confront us. What is life? What is living? What does it mean to us? What is it all about? It is not one of the major tragedies, is it not one of the major tragedies of life that amid all of our concerns about life, all our intellectual activity, all our discussions, the one thing which men and women are never concerned to face is the first and most obvious thing of all, namely life itself and living. Not only is this a most important question in itself, but I want to go further and point out that here we stand face to face with the most thorough test we can ever encounter of our profession of the Christian life. And so the idea there is that that's the essence of who we are. What is life? What is living? What does it mean to us? What is it all about? Um, and hopefully uh, we will come up with the right answers. He says this, I end with my question. Is living to us Christ? I wonder whether we can make that statement that was made by Count Zizendorf, the Moravian leader who helped John Wesley both before and after his conversion. He had never had the vision that Paul had on the road to Damascus, but to him too, Christ was the center. So can we make his motto our own? I have one passion. It is he and he alone. To me, living is Christ. Oh, that we all might have this passion. I believe we could transform our land in a day. I believe a great revival would come. If only we had this passion, he and he alone. Let us dwell upon him. Let us meditate upon him. Let us ask the Holy Spirit to reveal him to us. Let us pray for it. Let us spend time with it. Let us absorb it. Let it take the central place. Let us do all we can to get to know him better. For to know him is to love him. I have one passion. It is he and he alone. So all of those things that we talk about, that's what it means to, to live is Christ. So when Paul also then said to die is gain, remember the world sees death as being the end. It is a loss for all that which we have lived. Paul says it's not that way for a believer. Uh, in other words, what, what the world thinks of as loss is actually our gain. Um, it sounds like foolishness with the world because the world basically believes that this is it. Even, even people who may claim to be Buddhist or Hindu, they kind of think that this is it. This is all there is. And that leads to a lot of really poor decisions. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 2, a natural man 
does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them, because they are spiritually appraised. So again, when, G, when Paul says that to die is gain, um, Paul goes on to state that death is the entrance to gain. It is not the exit from living. So that's why when we, as Christians, when we, when we attend the funeral of a believer, again, there is sadness because we miss that individual. And that's right and proper for us to be sad and to grieve that that person is gone. But again, as the Bible says, we're not grieving as those who have no hope. There is a full expectation that we will see them again. And we will. God has kept all of his promises. And so it is the entrance into the life that God has promised us. So it's the, it's the door that we have to go through. We don't like that door. One day that door will no longer be there, and God will eliminate death. But until that day, that's what it is. It is that door into that spiritual existence that's very real. Um, so I don't want, again, don't think in terms of, you know, Casper the ghost or spirits floating around. Uh, it's very, um, uh, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of substance to this. All right, you're gonna, you will be aware of who you are and where you are. Uh, my mom died earlier this year. My mom is, is alive and she knows where she is. She knows that she's, she's in the presence, she can't help but know she's in the presence of God. And she is happier now than she's ever been in her life. Happier. She is eagerly awaiting the rest of us to join her there. So it's a real place that actually exists and she's fully awake. She's not sleeping. You know, she's not you know, in a coma. None of that none of the things is happening. She is very much aware of what's going on and very excited to be there. And she's filled with happiness that is so great, you can't even explain it in human terms. And so that's the reality that we have as believers. I've always wondered what it's like. For, I, and I, it, it's, for the non-believer, I'm not sure what they're thinking. I, do, I know what some th- are thinking because I've been with them. Uh, I think I've showed you before the, the, the starkest uh, moment I've ever had was I was asked to do a funeral for a lady. She had retired as an officer from the jail. And I, and I knew this. She, she, she had, church had, was no part of her life. She didn't go to church when she was a kid. She didn't go to church as, as, a, as an adult. God was just not a thing. Her husband, same thing. Her kids, same thing. They're, they're both adults now. You know, no one, they, they had nothing. In fact, it was a friend who talked to the husband and said, your wife's got pancreatic cancer. Do you have a preacher to do her funeral? And he said, I don't even know a preacher. And so the guy said, well, I can get the chaplain from the jail, which was me, and so I was going to do it. So when they, they called me, um, the day that she died, she was at hospice, so I went there, and they had moved her body into a, a little room, kind of the size of one of these overflow rooms, so her body's in the middle of the room, and there's just a few chairs, and there's only three people in the room. So her son, her daughter, and her husband. So I came in, I made four. I came in, there, it was real quiet, so you know, we'd only met briefly. So I just sat down, um, there's nothing to say, and you know, they're very sad that she's dead, obviously, and they're sitting there, and you know, when you're with a small, it doesn't matter if it's small or, or a large number of people, when no one's speaking, time goes by really slow. I mean, you, you can start hearing the silent clock moving. <laughs> All right, you can hear that. I mean, it's, it's kind of eerie. So as I'm sitting there, that's, it's quiet. No one's saying a word. So I don't know how long it was, 
It seemed like a real long time, but after a while, this is what her husband said. Now, before I tell you what he said, in many cases, especially Christians, at least with people who've been exposed to the Bible, but especially Christians, there's a lot of talking. Right? When, my, when my mom was uh, on her deathbed, uh, me, uh, my two sisters, Cindy, um, my uh, um, two nieces, and my dad, we, we all, we started, we sang, we started singing uh, some hymns. We ended up singing seven or eight, maybe nine. Um, and then we stopped, and we were just kind of talking. And then my mom, uh, she breathed her last breath. And of course, there was a little bit of silence, but we, we kept talking. Talked about mom, talked about us. There was, still, there was still life in the room, all right? And, and then later on, when we went to the viewing, we were talking. You know, there was, things were happening. But now back to this small group, nothing's being said. And then the husband said, well, I guess that's it. And he stood up and stuck his hand and said, thank you for coming, chaplain. I know you're doing the funeral. Uh, I guess I'll see you in a couple days. And then he and the kids left. That was it. When they had the viewing, few people came. I came. Husband and his kids were there. Not much talking. What I did notice was no one said a word about her, except some people who came in and said, you know, I'm sorry for your loss, or I enjoyed working with her. There was a few of those things, but not much. And really have a whole lot of friends. Just, I don't know what, I mean, I'm, how do you have a life like that? And, um, and I'd already told him, um, I was very gentle with it, but I told him that, you know, I, um, I asked if any of them wanted to kind of do the eulogy. I didn't know her to be able to give a eulogy. He said, nah. He said, no, we're not going to have that. He says, you just talk. So I, was ta so I took the hu her husband aside and I told him, I said, look, I said, because I didn't know for a fact, even though I was pretty sure I knew where she went, I said, I, you know, I'm not going to talk about her being in heaven. And he said, oh yeah, no problem. I said, okay. So I didn't. When I got up to speak, I think I had two sentences that I said about her, and that was about it. And then I talked about how we can know heaven's a real place and how to, how to how can we know to get there? But I, there was nothing. The man, that's just hopelessness. Just not, I mean, nothing. It's hard to imagine. She was not, she was like, uh, I think she was, she wasn't, um, she was 69, so once when she was young, you know, pancreatic cancer can make you look old quick because she looked like she was in her 80s by the time she passed. Um, but they had been married for a real long time, you know, most of their, all, almost all their adult lives. And there was just nothing to say. They had a whole life together. Just nothing. I mean, if, you, if, if, if this is it and you die, what is there? I mean, it was just the sadness I felt for them was really incredible. And yet even with that, they didn't even, it's almost like they didn't even know enough to be sad for themselves which is really sad, uh, to say the least. But there's a lot of hopelessness in that. And uh, that's why in Ecclesiastes it says,
that it's more profitable for us to go to the house of mourning than to go basically to the house of happiness or to the party house. And the reason why it's more profitable for us to go to the house of mourning is because that's where we all end up. Until the Lord comes, we're all going to be in a box one day. And we are to think about our life. We want our life to matter. We want our life to count. And even people say, well, I don't want my life to matter. I go, yeah, you do. If you have, if you have children, you want your life to matter to your kids. If you have grandchildren, you want your life to matter to your grandchildren. That would be human. You want that. We have, this, we have a deep desire not only to know others, we, all, we have a very deep desire to be known. We, we want to be known. All right? That helps us to have, that, that's what gives us that sense of belonging. All right? that my family knows me. Right? They know me. I belong there. We all need to belong somewhere. It's important. That's the way, that's the way God has designed us. And so if you don't have that, uh, man, it just, it, it just does a number on you. Um, and it's, it's, a, it's a very sad existence. But that's what man today is really opting for. And the way they deal with that is they don't think about it. That's why they, they want noise and they want uh, something happening all the time, as often as possible. You want something going on. Uh, I, I've shared this with some of you before. It's a very, just a kind of an interesting statistic where it talked about that man has, a, just in general, that mankind has a, at least in Western culture, we have a fear of silence, being, being left to our own thoughts. And this one guy, they did a study, and they said that um, they, they, they studied what, what people do when they check into a hotel. And what they, were, what they were trying to investigate was, what do you do when you first walk into your room? And they said that it's almost 90% of everyone who walks into the hotel room within 120 seconds turns the TV on, even if they don't watch it. Because they don't want to be there in silence. Because they don't want to be alone with their thoughts. It terrifies them. They don't think that, because they just do it automatically. But they don't want to be there um, alone with their thoughts. So you know what I did? I wait at least four minutes now. No. <laughs> yeah, sometimes I wait longer. But yeah, of course, but I'm going to watch something. Like, oh, there's a football game on. Yeah. But anyway, but the idea is we don't want to be alone with our thoughts. And so again, so this, again, this relationship we have with Christ and then our perspective on death really is a great blessing that we have that we sometimes can overlook because we don't, really, we don't, we don't walk around every day thinking about death. And we don't walk around every day thinking, oh man, I'm so glad I have a good view of death. We don't think that. But it still affects your life. It still affects what we think. It still affects what goes on in us emotionally when someone we know who's a believer is diagnosed with maybe something bad and they're dying. We feel bad for them. We feel bad for their family. We don't want them to die. But we're not panicking. We're not thinking, oh my gosh, the, the world's coming to an end. We don't think that way. We don't feel that way. <coughs> Uh, now, we may begin to panic a little bit if we know the person's not a believer. Because think, wow. I mean, they're, they're fixing to get into a situation where there's no coming back from that. You know, when you die as a non-believer, there's no, there's no other chance. It just does not exist. And that, that also motivates us maybe to do something different. Or maybe sometimes it motivates us, I need to go see so-and-so. 
I need to make sure that I verbalize, whether it's one more time or whatever, I want them to hear the gospel. Because we know that's what makes a difference. So, again, this uh, verse that Paul uh, stated, you know, to live as Christ and to die as gain, is, of, is the essence of, of so much, and so much that's true of our life, and really wraps up for us uh, the tremendous blessing that God has given us through his son Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, again, we thank you for your kindness to us and again for this great perspective we have on, on this life. I pray, Father, for all of us here that are believers, that you help us to understand the great joy that is ours because we know you. And that it is not a burden for our lives to revolve around you. That it's really a very natural thing. It's just a, a natural mindset. I pray, Lord, you help each of us to desire to have a, a greater degree of that in the way that we think and approach life. I also, Lord, ask that you help us to, again, recognize what a great gift it is that we have a, a, a proper understanding of what death is. Even though, Father, we know we don't know everything. We know the most important things. And we do understand, Lord, that it is a door. And we thank you that because of Christ, we know that we can walk through that door and be on the, the proper side. And even though we're not in a hurry to die, we know, Lord, that in the, when that day comes, we'll be comforted because of the truth of what you've said. And so, Lord, we, we actually do look forward to that day. We look forward to a day when there's no more pain and no more sorrow and no more death, no more separation. And so we, we thank you for that. So, Father, I ask now that you would dismiss us with your blessing and you would help us to think maybe a little more often about some of these things, that we would grow in our gratefulness to you for all that you've done for us and what you've given us. We are very grateful, Lord, that this life is not all there is. Because even, Lord, if we live to be 150, it still would be way too short. And we just thank you, Father, that we have a full, endless life to look forward to. And so we ask now, Lord, that you would dismiss us with your grace. We do thank you and ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.